Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters, and we're so glad you've joined us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, where disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the first Corinthian letter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, the following. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. He is a source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, Paul says this after he greeted the Corinthian Christians and gave thanks for them, and having taken issues with the divisiveness that had arisen amongst them. And Paul is very concerned that people were using the fact that he baptized them to foment those kind of divisions. Uh, and he wanted to make it clear in verse 17 that he was called to preach the gospel, not in the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, be made void. And so what Paul is doing in verses 18 through 31 is expanding on this contrast between the wisdom of words and the cross of Christ. That the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it's God's power. And then Paul will quote from Isaiah chapter 29 verse 14 in the Greek translation with some modification. That the wisdom of the wise God will destroy and he will just thwart the discernment of the discerning. And so we ask then rhetorically, where is the wise, the scribe, the debater of the age? For God has made their wisdom foolish. According to his wisdom, they did not know him. And so it's God's good pleasure to save some through the foolishness of the cross. And then Paul provided a new contrast. Jews seek signs, but Greeks seek wisdom. It is Christians who preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, but the power and wisdom of God to those Jews and Greeks who are being saved. In verses 22 through 24. Now, go back and, you know, the Gospels, we can find a few requests by Jews for signs. You know, the Pharisees will ask for a sign, uh, others will ask for a sign, John 2, 18, Matthew 12, 33 to 39, etc. And maybe that's what Paul has in mind, but he also could have just a general disposition uh, that existed among the Jews in mind, that they expect to see some kind of divine demonstration of things according to what they're expecting, or at least within the range of things that they're willing to countenance. 
And the Greeks, of course, they're seeking after philosophy. Philosophia is the love of wisdom. So when Paul talks about uh, Greek seek wisdom, it's philosophy that they're after. And all these different philosophical schools, the Platonic, the Peripatetic, which are those who are following Aristotle, the Cynics, the Stoics, Epicureans, like you saw in Acts 17 and verse 18. Now, for better or for worse, the current state of Western knowledge and wisdom really is following that Greek trajectory, seeking after wisdom through many of the same forms of observation. Now, Paul accurately assesses the Jewish and Greek response to the proclamation of the message of Jesus the Christ and him crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. This, this whole image comes from Isaiah 8, 14 through 15. We also see it in Romans 9, 32 and 33 and 1 Peter 2 and verse 8. It's not as if there was no messianic speculation about, for instance, the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 among the Jews of the first century. Uh, but Jews of the Second Temple period uh, were looking for a Messiah who would conquer the Romans, not be crucified by them. The idea that Christ had come, lived, died, was raised from the dead, and then reigns over a transcendent kingdom was something that's scandalous something upon which the Jews of the day would trip, and they did not accept it. We see this in Acts 28, when Paul finally does make it to Rome. The Jewish believers there of, of Judaism say that they've heard that uh, the sect of the Nazarenes is spoken against everywhere. They'll hear Paul about it, but when Paul starts telling them about the idea of Jesus Christ and him crucified, uh, they no longer wish to hear. Furthermore, the idea that God would be one in three persons was a non-starter. That God would become flesh and dwell among them was blasphemous. What good was a transcendent kingdom in, if uh, it didn't actually lead to the overcoming of Roman oppression and liberation from the pagan overlords that they had been suffering under for so long? And that is why the Greeks found, Jews, excuse me, found the gospel to be a stumbling block. They tripped over it, they would not accept it. For the Greeks, it was foolishness. Now, Greek philosophy has a lot of different uh, strands, a lot of disagreements within it, but uh, they were unified in not thinking very highly of the Greek gods who were anthropomorphic, were very much in the form of man. Uh, Plato, in particular, was enamored with his theory of the forms. He thought everything on earth was kind of an imperfect manifestation of the forms, that there was some great ideal out there, and everything else that we see here on earth are kind of various poor manifestations of them. And that's why we can understand well the response to the gospel in Areopagus in Acts 17.32. Uh, so much of Greek philosophy is a desire to get rid of the physical and mental, material, excuse me, and embrace pure spirit, so that Paul would preach that God would, in pure spirit would take on flesh, dwell among us, be crucified, and then raised bodily, uh, would be something regarding which a lot of people would mock. In fact, the Corinthian Christians, who... Uh, you think would it be Christians, they accept the whole thing, actually are struggling with the idea of the resurrection in chapter 15. Uh, so much there is about the importance of recognizing the resurrection of the dead and Jesus raised from the dead. And a lot of Greek believers in the future would be tempted to hold to a version of Jesus that wasn't in the flesh. Uh, that's what Paul has to worry about and John has to worry about in terms of the, the, the developing Gnostic uh, issues in 1 Timothy 6 and 2 Timothy 2, 1 John 2 and 4 and 2 John. Because in Greek philosophy, every premise of the gospel, the idea of Christ crucified, was entirely foolish, completely inconsistent with their ideology, and completely against everything they had desired. And so that is why uh, Paul accurately says, yes, this is a stumbling block to Jews, and it's fo foolishness to Gentiles, completely inconsistent with their principles. And that is why he will then conclude this section powerfully, that the foolishness of God is wiser than man, that God's weakness is stronger than men.
And then he turns to the Corinthians themselves as an example of this. That not many among them are wise or noble or mighty, but in, in, that they're in fact very lowly and humble. Uh, those who have come to believe in Jesus. It's a recognition that uh, Christianity spread among the humble and poor classes. Now, not many for good reason, he says, because there are some among them who were of the nobility, uh, or of note. Gaius is able to host the whole house, a, a whole a church, excuse me, in his house, and that probably indicates something. And Erastus is a treasurer in Romans 16.23, and so you'd have to have some prominence in order to be in those positions. But they are to be considered the minority, that most are very poor people. And so what Paul's trying to show is through uh, Jesus, the gospel, and the choice that God is making uh, in Christ, uh, open to all men, but only those who will receive it, are those who are of the lowly. That, in fact, uh, God is putting to shame the wise and the strong of this world. He's elevating the quote-unquote folly and weakness according to the world, bringing the whole system of the world, in fact, to naught, because none of them will have the right to glory uh, before God. The way Jesus would put it, and we see it so frequently in the Gospels, that whoever humbles himself will be exalted, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and that the last will be first, and the first will be last. And in fact, it was prophesied of Jesus, uh, the whole Magnificat of Mary in Luke chapter 1, that the, her soul magnifies God. Why? Because he has lifted up these humble people and brought down the mighty and, and those in powerful estate. Uh, and we see that in the kingdom of God in Christ. So Paul is trying to encourage the Christians that through Christ we have access to God, who has made Jesus our righteousness, our sanctification, our wisdom, and that if we're going to boast, we should boast in the Lord. And we see here uh, a reference to Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24. And so in this passage, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31, Paul is lifting up the image of Jesus on the cross as the embodiment of God's foolishness that sets to naught the wisdom and ways of this world. I think it's a very powerful thing for us to consider here in the 21st century because that's the same premise that we should be considering the folly of the crucifixion to see what it helps us to understand about what God would have us to do in Jesus. And Paul chooses well to emphasize the cross here, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus as a foolishness of God. What's interesting about all the various arguments going on about uh, Jesus and the scholastic circles is the one's thing that you can get everybody to agree on is that Jesus died. And not just that Jesus died, but that Jesus was crucified by the Romans. That's something you can get everybody to agree to. That seems to be the one fact that we can all come to terms with about Jesus. But its meaning is very compelling. And it's absolutely very much contrary to the way that any human would go about things. And that's why Paul will go on in verses 6 through 10 of the next chapter. And in Acts three seventeen, Peter will say that uh, no one really knew what they were doing when they crucified Jesus. Uh, if they had known what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. And it's for good reason. Because let's think about it for just a second. Let's do a, a thought exercise for a moment. If you were going to establish a new kingdom, and your goal was to liberate people from bondage, how would you go about doing that? Well, odds are you'd probably go about doing it the way that people have been trying to do that for generations. You try to persuade some people, you try to marshal your forces, and then you attack the uh, forces of your opponent on the battlefield, and you gain the victory over them, and therefore you triumph, and you can accomplish your purposes. That's the conventional wisdom that we've seen for generations. That's the way the world works, according to all of its systems. But uh, 
almost everything about Jesus and his life and death would fall afoul of that wisdom. He was born not to some kind of wealthy family, but to poor parents. We see that in Luke 2, 22-24, and in verse 39. Uh, they did not offer the greatest sacrifice. They offered the one for the poor people. He was not formally educated and trained in Jerusalem by the appropriate authorities. He grew up instead in the backwater of Nazareth. In John seven fifteen, we learn he's not uh, well-educated. His coalition of followers are not well-trained and equipped to staff major positions. You think about the 12 apostles. You're going to try to get a group of people ready to take over a state. Uh, those are not the people that you choose. Uh, you choose people with a little bit more uh, experience in maybe economics, foreign policy, etc., etc. It's not the way uh, P uh, Jesus went about things. Uh, and he went about doing good. He taught. He healed people. Uh, he did not go around organizing by marshalling forces. When people would want to make him king, like in John 6 and verse 15, he fled from them. And at the center of it all, Jesus enters into Jerusalem in triumph to receive his kingdom. But he does that by being betrayed, arrested, mocked, derided, beaten, and crucified in Matthew 21 and 26 through 27. This is not the way anyone would have designed this, and that's exactly the point. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus can and does appeal to the Scriptures to demonstrate what he is doing. We can make understandable sense of Jesus in terms of the hopes and expectations of uh, Jewish people in Second Temple Judaism, but this isn't the way you put the story together. Maybe you put the story together as the birth of the Messiah, his life, then he reigns, he dies, maybe for people. Uh, he's then raised on the final day, if you're a believer in the resurrection. But you wouldn't def put it together as birth, life, death, resurrection, and then reign. And so, in Paul in Ephesians 3, we'll talk about how the mystery of God was something that was kept from people for generations, but only now has been revealed in Christ and in the Spirit, is also true about the crucifixion. That God only made all of this known as it was happening. It only makes sense by revelation afterward. And we see this really clearly in the disciples, don't we? They are full of expectations of Second Temple Judaism. They are convinced Jesus is the Messiah, but throughout his ministry, they show very little understanding of what he's doing and how he's doing it and how it leads to the intended end until after it's all said and done. And then in Acts chapter 2 and 10 and 11, they, they demonstrate a much better understanding. And so in the crucifixion of Jesus, we're seeing a very supernal foolishness of God being greater than the wisdom of man. We can see the end result, by the way, of man's ideas about how things should have gone down in Jerusalem in the first century. You know, Everything the Jews wanted Jesus to do, they tried to do with their own hands 40 years later, and the Romans came and destroyed them, and destroyed their temple, and it's never been rebuilt. Uh, the way things are, quote-unquote, in man's view, according to the way the world system works, keeps repeating the same cycles over and over again. The only thing that changes is the people who are in charge. To what end? You know, there's people dominating or being dominated and using the ways of the world it doesn't change anything God knew what he was doing in Christ even when nobody else did and so in this way we can see the hand of God in Jesus of Nazareth and his life and death and it should lead us to humility and to faith and as a result we need to also be skeptical about the wisdom of man you know, it's very easy for us to say, okay, yeah, 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 we understand. God's overthrown the wisdom of men in Jesus. But then everything else that we do, we try to according to human wisdom. But 
Paul will warn us in Colossians 2 and verse 9 that we're not to be taken captive, in verse 8 also, by philosophy and appeals to the elemental spirits of this world. And in James 3, James will contrast the wisdom from, from the worldly wisdom as demonic, unspiritual, leading to selfish ambition and jealousy. But there is a different kind of wisdom, a wisdom that comes from above, that's pure and peaceable and gentle. Something very different there. And to this day, it's unfortunate, even seeing people of God who will see things that Jesus says, like in the Sermon on the Mount or other places, and they'll just set it aside, dismiss it briskly by just saying, well, that's just not the way things work here. That's just not how it goes. Well, in, in the fact of the matter is that when Jesus said it, that's not the way that it goes. Uh, when the apostles were living, that's not the way it goes. It's never been the way it goes on earth. It's never the way it is according to human wisdom. But has not God overthrown the wisdom of man on the cross? Yes, many of the things that Jesus talked about, violence, peacemaking, sacrifice, suffering, humility, and equality, and things of that nature are not the way things work here. And that's exactly the point. We're supposed to instead look upward. We're supposed to get our motivation or inspiration from somewhere else, and it's going to be different than it looks in the world and according to the ways of the world. The world is so obsessed with knowledge and expertise. And they're using the same methodology that really uh, was founded in the Greeks in their search for wisdom. Uh, the very wisdom that God has rendered futile and void in Christ. Now, let's be very clear. There's lots of things that we can understand about the creation using the scientific method and using general philosophical means of inquiry. Now, many of those things aren't wrong. But their truth are not rooted because in those methods that we used, but only because they accurately reflect how God has made and how he sustains the world. So Paul goes back to Romans 1, 18 through 20, uh, that everybody should know of God because we can see his handiwork in the things that he's made. Uh, in Colossians 1 as well, that God continues to sustain the world in Christ. Same in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth... So God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. That human logic and wisdom may have some benefit, but it has limits. And all things we think may be true according to human logic and wisdom must be put to the test of the revelation God has made for us in Christ. It's not for nothing that the Hebrew author begins his book talking about how God first spoke to us, to the fathers by the prophets, and now speaks to us through his Son. That uh, God's message is what he has spoken. It is true because he has said it because he is true. And everything that we can try to divine through expertise and study and investigation uh, cannot compare uh, to the message that God has made known to us in Jesus. And so if we're going to trust in Jesus as a crucified one, as Lord in Christ, we need to look at the ways of the world skeptically and remember in humility that God's foolishness is greater than man. We would also be we would be remiss if we did not focus on another element that God has set forth for us in Jesus in his crucifixion. The weakness and vulnerability of God. Again, according to the ways of the world, by definition, crucifixion meant failure. It's a public, humiliating, devastating death. Uh, so much so that uh, Gamaliel is able to stand up in the Sanhedrin Acts 5 and talk about all these guys who rose up, Judas of Galilee and Theodos and mothers. They claimed to be the Messiah. People went after them. But the Romans came, crucified them, and their movements dissipated. 
Crucifixion represented how Rome kept the peace. That is the domination system that the Romans established, where everyone would see on brute force uh, used against people like that and would learn their lesson to not go in the same paths as they did. Is it really hard for us to imagine why Greeks thought the idea that a crucified guy would be Lord and God is really foolish? You think about it, and worldly logic and wisdom, it really is. In fact, some of the earliest graffiti testifying to Christianity is a donkey on a cross with the inscription, Alexandros worships his God. It's not very flattering. It's an indication of pagan derision aimed at Alexandros. Uh, and so we can see why it would be that way, because Christians exalting a crucified guy is completely baffling. Why would they do that? Stupid. But what's interesting about it is that Christians would be given every reason to want to run away from that. It's an embarrassment that their guy was taken by the Romans, treated badly, and killed. But they not only talk about it, but they'll go out of their way to ex emphasize the humiliation that Jesus suffered. Peter will have a certain kind of phrase in Acts 5 and verse 30 and 10 and verse 39 talking about Jesus that can uh, sometimes get missed. He talks about Jesus as hung upon a tree. You might find that kind of odd. But Paul will explain uh, the logic behind that kind of uh, declaration in Galatians 3 and in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from, all, uh, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who has hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Paul is explaining there, quoting, quoting Deuteronomy 21, uh, 22 and 23, that there's this curse that comes on those who hung, hung, hang from a tree. And so when Peter and Paul are talking about Jesus as hanging on a tree, making it sound worse than it is, is to, in fact, increase the derision. Because now it's not just an issue the fact that he was humiliated in his death, but that he's now a cursed person because he hung on a tree. They're not running away from this or trying to minimize it, which any decent PR firm would be doing, right? No, the apostles instead boldly proclaim it and that make their stand upon it. This is what it's all about. Why would the apostles do such a thing? That's crazy, right? Well, it's because by revelation they discerned that how Jesus proved obedient and victorious by suffering and enduring humiliation, that in Christ weakness is strength and strength is weakness. In Hebrews 4 and verse 15, in chapter 5, 7 through 8, we're told that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin, and that he uh, learned obedience by the things that he suffered. In Colossians 2, 10 through 15, and Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, Jesus kills the hostility on the cross between men, because he triumphs over the principalities and powers on the cross. Anything that would divide humans is overcome through Jesus' reconciliation on the cross. And in fact, Paul himself would go through this in 2 Corinthians 7, 12, 7 through 10. A very compelling message there. Where he said, To keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. So we see that very powerful, that reversal, that foolishness here in Paul's very words. This is now his, his, his life's cry in many ways. He understands all the things going, he's going through in terms of this, that strength is weakness and weakness is strength. And Peter's really driving home the implications of the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 uh, through what he has to say in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness." By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. He suffered, but he did not threaten retaliation, but entrusted himself to God who judges justly. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. By his wounds we are healed. Peter has mixed in Isaiah 52 and 53 language into his own declaration about what Jesus has done. Why? so that we might die to sin, to live to righteousness, and to follow his example to endure suffering. Now, we can hardly overstate how countercultural and counterintuitive this idea is of a crucified Lord in Christ. And it's not just counterintuitive and countercultural in, say, Second Temple Judaism, or in first century Rome, or 21st century America. It's that way in all cultures and at all times. Because what is conventional wisdom in Roman times of today? We project strength, confidence, and assertiveness. Despite all the philosophical howling about it, practically might has always made right. The winners write the history, and the winners are the ones who prove victorious in the fight and overcome their opponents through some kind of coercion or another. It might be on the battlefield, it might be in the halls of universities, or in, in academia or other or, or places of cultural prestige, but that's how it works. And throughout it all, if we look weak or if we expose weakness, it's, it's considered a failure. It's an opportunity to be eviscerated and to be destroyed by the strong. That's how it works. And that's why all of us in our lives find it so much easier to just act like we've got everything together, act like we're strong, put that strong face on, lest anybody else see our wounds, our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses. Uh, we see this in sports, where they're looking to see what kind of injuries are going on, and a lot of teams will try to hide injuries or, 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 th or redirect it, lest everybody see and exploit that weakness. They do that in companies, they do that in governments, it goes on and on and on. But in Christ... God has confounded the wisdom of the world, that God's weakness is greater than man, his strongest, as we've seen, that Jesus proved for our sake weak and vulnerable. We, therefore, need to follow his example. And that is why he calls upon his followers. Long before he picked up his cross, he told his followers to take up their cross daily, follow after him in Matthew 16, 24 and Luke 9, 23. We use that word vulnerable advisedly. The word vulnerable 
the Latin word vulnere is wound. So to be vulnerable is to be able to be wounded. And what did Peter say Jesus did on the cross? He, by his wounds, we were healed. When he was scourged, he was wounded, he was vulnerable. That is what allowed us to be saved. And that is why we see here Peter calls upon Christians to suffer as Jesus suffered. That is why one of the most compelling verses we can find is in 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 16. That by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That we need to be willing to suffer loss for the benefit of others, even unto death. So we need to go through a thorough reorientation recalibrations if we're going to live according to the values of the kingdom of God in Christ, that if we truly look, recognize our citizenships in heaven from which we await a savior in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Because sure, in the world, absolutely, it's about strength and power and avoiding signs of weakness. But it is not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we need to prove willing to be weak if we're going to be strengthened in Christ. We must suffer. We must show humility. We must prove willing to be vulnerable toward others, to truly love, to truly feel compassion. And that means we're going to be betrayed at times. It means we're going to be humiliated at times, as Christ did. And we need to go through that if we want to, in fact, obtain what Christ obtained and to be exalted by God in, in the end, in Philippians 2, 1 through 12. Now, in Revelation 13, we can see how the cross is complete foolishness of the world. We have a picture of this beast who's empowered by the dragon. He's able to overcome the saints in persecution. They die. He seems like he's gained the victory. But in Revelation 15, we're invited to see those who have overcome the beast. Those very same saints are those who have proven victorious because they held fast to the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and did not love their lives even to death in Revelation 12 and 10. It may seem more welling to us to define weakness as strength and strength weakness, as victory is suffering death and defeat as compromise, to see wisdom as foolishness and foolishness as wisdom. But we need to redefine these ideas in our minds if we're going to follow God in Christ. And that, ultimately, is the essence of what it means to repent in Jesus. That we change our hearts and minds to follow the way of the crucified one, the way of suffering, weakness, and vulnerability. But that's the way that leads to life. That's the way that we will find eternity in a way we would want it. Everything else leads to death. So the apostles call on us to serve the crucified one, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord and Christ. We are called to boast and glory in the cross, a degrading, despised, humiliating instrument of public execution. This is complete madness for all those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is a power of God of salvation. But are we really willing to really absorb the implications of the cross? The idea in Matthew 20, 25 to 28, that the way of strength and power is through suffering and service, that the way of love is vulnerability and pain, the way of knowledge is through revelation of God, not the wisdom of man. That what is of great esteem on earth is nothing to God, and what is lightly valued here is of inestimable worth to Him. That the way of victory is through suffering and death, loving not our lives to death. Are we willing to 
come to grips with that and make that true in our lives and to look at everything differently because the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. And that's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Therefore, may we follow the crucified one, boast only the cross of Christ, so that we may obtain the resurrection of life. I'm so glad that you've joined us. If you really appreciate this, we'd love it if you'd share it to friends and family and others on social media online. If you'd like to contact us because you have some questions about something we talked about, maybe you'd like to consider other discussions, or you have a prayer request, or would like a Bible study or a Bible correspondence course, uh, you can please uh, check us out online at VenisureToChrist.org. We're also on social media. If I can be of any service personally, please get hold of me through my website at TheVerbalVitae.com. That's www.D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.